You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Years ago when we were in Zimbabwe, I was sick and just really was really, really sick. Two African pastors had got the means to take a bus to come to my home. And when they got to the door, Sheila said, well, he's in here, but he's real sick. He's laying down. And uh, I've never had this happen to me before. These two African pastors came in and said, uh, Mufundis Parker said, we want to pray for you. And so they knelt down and they laid hands on me. And Sheila remembers. They knelt down and they laid hands on me and they began to cry out. They, first they were crying out in English, but then they began to cry out into the language of their heart, the Shona language. And at a certain point, I've never had this happen until today. I just felt like an electrical current just go all the way through from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. And immediately, immediately my pain stopped. And um, I knew at that moment that God had answered the prayers of those two African pastors. I, to be honest with you, I was down this morning. Uh, my heart was heavy. And I, I, I thought, you know, I just didn't know how I would be in worship today. But there came a point in this worship service for the second time in my life, I felt like a power just moved from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. And I remembered Chris McKinnon when Chris would look at me and he said, I feel like running right now, running around this sanctuary. I feel like jumping and I understand why David began to dance before the Lord. And thank God, thank God. Uh, to be honest with you, yesterday Jeffrey had texted and told me about Rick Warren's son. Rick Warren, the pastor of Saddleback Church, writer of Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Life. His 27-year-old son, the youngest of his kids, committed suicide. And it just absolutely broke my heart. I became so upset in Walmart that I went out to my car and I just stood out there and I wept. And I just wept. Sheila and I both, we just cried. Then we began to pray for Rick and Kay Warren and for their family and this loss. And I thought a moment ago, Jeffrey, I thought a moment ago as we were worshiping all over the world today, literally all over the world, people from all walks of life have been lifting up the name of Jesus. And, and in that moment, I thought to myself, the best thing that we can do for this family in California as this church prepares to worship is to join them by way of the Holy Spirit and to pray for them and to worship alongside of them. And that's what we've done. This is a taste of heaven. This is what heaven is all about. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you so much that you love us. We thank you so much, dear Lord, that when we come into a service like this, that our hearts can be heavy. But dear Lord, as these that have been sensitive and sought your Holy Spirit, as they guide us in worship, dear Lord, our eyes fill with tears, our hands begin to raise, we begin to sing with such a, an energy and a passion that, dear Lord, our lives feel altered and bettered. And, and, and dear Lord, we praise you for that. Lord, we are saddened today, uh, uh, a family who have 
affected not only this world, but this nation, and even our lives, are experiencing the deepest grief of all. Lord, we pray, as so many believers have around the world, that you right now would wrap your arms around Rick and Kay Warren, around their two children that survive, and in-laws and grandchildren. We pray, dear Lord, that you would wrap your arms around Saddleback, around that church today, that they would feel the power of your Holy Spirit, that, dear Lord, a peace would come over that congregation that, like us, they would feel the energy that can only come through you. We pray, dear Lord, that you might minister to them in a very, very special way. And Lord, as you draw your body from all over the world, all walks of life, as you draw us close to you, may we hear your heartbeat, Lord. And we pray, dear Lord, that you might, dear Lord, even in this time, speak to us through your word. And we give you the glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. And um, I, what I would like to do today, I, I just need to, uh, I need to share some things from my heart. And, and even, even though we're a little low today, that may be for the better. It, because I believe this. I believe this. If you're here today, you're here by divine appointment. God has brought you here because there's something that, that he wants you to hear. And, and it is critically important. So if you're here today, and I pray that all of you are, then, uh, and you're in tune with the Holy Spirit, I believe God's going to say some things to you that, uh, that you need to hear and may affect your life. Paul, we've been looking at the book of Ephesians. Paul has written this book to the early followers there in the, in the city of Ephesus. He's been in the first three chapters talking about doctrine, talking about beliefs, talking about how we are in Christ, what that means. And then in chapter 4, and Paul does this over and over again, what Paul will do is Paul will always talk about our beliefs, then he'll talk about our behavior. Now look this way. How you behave is what you believe. And all God's people said, amen. What you believe determines how you behave. If I tell you the building is on fire... If you believe that, then you're going to do what? You're going to get up, running and screaming, getting on out of the building. You see, what we believe affects how we behave. And so in every one of Paul's letters, whether Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, Philippians, no matter where you go, Paul, for the most part, maybe Philippians may be a little bit different, but for the most part, Paul's always talking about what we believe, and then Paul will talk about how we behave. Now, when he gets to chapter 4, he's talking about the church. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. Now, when we started this series on the book of Ephesians, basically we said this. We said that God has marked out the boundaries. That's what the word parizo, that, that Greek word there for predestined. God before, listen, before God ever created anything, God already had a plan, and his plan was Jesus. And so God has provided a way for you and I to be saved. Now what Paul has been dealing with is how we come to Christ in chapter 3, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. Paul's been talking about how we come to Christ in this process of, sal of salvation. 
But now Paul is going to, in chapter 4, 5, and 6, he's going to talk about how we behave once we're in Christ. Okay? In other words, how the church behaves and what is the function. What's the function of the church? How does the church behave and how does it impact this world that we're living in? Now, now let me say this. There's a lot of people today that want to fix the church. And so today I'm, I'm going to be kind of like the Methodist preacher who said before I preach, I got some things I want to say. Okay? Would you do me that privilege? Before I preach, on, uh, before we go, move on through chapter 4 of Ephesians where Paul is talking about the church, I just got some things that I'd like for you, for you to hear. And, and uh, I've, I've kind of written them out. It might help me out a little bit, but... I want you to understand, we talk about fixing the church. There are a multitude of voices today. I mean, listen, there are people everywhere. They're preaching, they're leading conferences, they're writing books, and everybody's basically saying that the church needs to be fixed. Now, l listen to me. I've been listening to a lot of these people here lately because I wanted to understand, well, you know, what are they saying? What are these people saying? What are these voices talking about? And one of the things is I think that, that, that most of them are saying simply this. We've allowed a lot of unconverted, unregenerate. In other words, we've, we've allowed a lot of lost people to join the church. And so the church today, though she's the bride of Christ, she's kind of an overweight bride with people that have never given their heart and life to Christ. Now the reason we know that is because of the way they behave. Okay, now, if you're with me so far, say amen. So a lot of voices are saying because of this, we've, we've got to fix it. We've, we've somehow got to fix the church. So maybe it's the sinner's prayer. Maybe we've kind of gotten loose with the sinner's prayer. So maybe we, need to, maybe we need to strike that out. Maybe we need to take that off. Maybe that's the reason so many people have kind of joined up with the church and they've never been truly saved. So maybe if we fix the sinner's prayer or maybe if we remove it, then maybe it might help the church. Or, or maybe if we uh, define more clearly repentance. Maybe people don't understand what it means to repent and be saved. So maybe if we not only define repentance, maybe if we kind of checked and made sure people were really repentant, then maybe that would fix the church. And, and there are other people that say, hey, let me tell you what the problem is with the church. It's this. This is the problem with the church. We, we've gotten to, our music's kind of gotten to, it's, it's just gotten kind of outside the boundaries, gotten a little extravagant, a little too celebrative and, and a little too contemporary. And maybe we need to just, maybe we need to go back to, back to the more traditional model because this seems to attract people that uh, are just coming to be entertained and they're not really, uh, they're not really converted. So maybe we, need to, maybe we need to fix this thing called worship and music. And then there are other people that think that, hey, we've got a theological problem here. We need to, we need to get back to the old ways. We need, to, we need to check our theological position. and maybe we, need to, maybe we need to change that. So theologically now we think, well, maybe we need to, if we could fix our theology, then maybe we could somehow fix the church. Well, let me ask you something. Does the church need to be fixed? You see, today we are, we are a church in a morally, ethically depraved country. Now, in some ways, as Americans who've had over 225 or 30 or 40 years, ever how long we've been here, uh, established as a nation, we've never, really, we've never really been in an environment culturally that was basically unchristian. 
We, we've lived in an environment, in a society, and even in a government that was, listen to this, was church-friendly. So in a church-friendly environment, the church seemed to never have no problems. We, we tended to do pretty good. But now we're kind of in a satanic sinkhole, you might say, morally and, and ethically. You listen to our music, you watch our movies. You know, I, uh, Sheila and I, we have screenit.com. And we go to screenit.com to determine whether we'll go see a movie or not. And, you know, you start looking down there and it tells you the language, tells you nudity, tells you this and that. And sometimes you're sitting there with your mouth open as you're reading this stuff, you know. And then Sheila will say, well, can we go see that movie? And I'll say, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. But if you listen to our music, if you watch our movies, if you, if you see the things that we laugh at, what entertains us, if you listen to what we talk about and you look at the clothes that we wear, it echoes the fact that we are in a moral crisis. And the church is in a moral crisis because for the first time we are in an environment that is not only post-Christian, but it almost seems to be anti-Christ. You can talk and you can say, God bless you. You ever notice that? God bless you. I'll be praying for you. But bring up the name Jesus and watch how the conversation will change. And so the church is in an environment in America that she's never been in before. Now, other countries in the world, they would be laughing at us right now. And they are laughing at us in some ways because... They, they understand what we're in. You see, our environment has somehow seeped into the church. In other words, instead of the church being the light, salt, and yeast, and yeast is a change agent. In other words, if you put yeast in a little bit of yeast in dough, what will it do? It will permeate the entire batch of dough. That's yeast. We're, we're yeast. We're, we're, we're the church. And church, the church is like yeast in its environment. It, 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 it begins to affect and change the environment. But listen, guess what's happened? Our environment has done what? It's changed us. And like Israel with her pagan neighbors, when she went into the promised land, God began to say, listen, don't compromise and don't... You know, don't do some of these things you're going to do with your enemy because it will come back to haunt you. Or like Solomon who had 700 wives, this son of David, King David, who David had warned this 19-year-old kid, listen, be very, very, you know, be very, very careful because if you start marrying foreign women, they'll affect your heart and they'll pull you away from God. The enemy has sown tares. In fact, if you look at Matthew chapter 13, 24 through 30, in fact, we'll look at that real quickly. Just, just I, I want you to see that. Take your Bible and go to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 13, because I, I want you to see this. This is not anything new. In fact, in, in Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 24. Am I in the right? Let me see. No, I'm in i got a different Bible than the one I used to stay. Okay, Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. Now that word parable, parabaleo, it's, a, it's the idea of being able to... Jesus literally bringing a picture beside a spiritual truth because he's trying to show us something. Now in, in Matthew 13, verse 24, Jesus told them another parable. He said, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. 
But while everyone was asleep, while everyone was sleeping, now don't read too much into that. They just went, they, they did their work, they, they got the field ready, they planted it, and then they went to bed. That's what a farmer would do. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Now that's another thing that was common in the New Testament. If you had an enemy and you, and you got your field ready, it wasn't unusual. If your enemy had a bone to pick with you, he had a problem with you, or your, or, you know, your dog got over in his garden, listen, and, and he got mad at you, then this was not uncommon in the New Testament. So the enemy, while, the, while they're sleeping... The Bible said, "Came and sowed weeds among the tear, sowed weeds among the wheat, and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him. Now watch this, and said, "Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? An enemy did this." He replied. The servants asked him, "Do you want now? Watch this. Do you want us to go and pull them up?" No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat in the process. You see, the enemy, in, in, in other words, the church today in America is in an alien environment. It's an unusual place for us to be. We are in a morally and spiritually deprived area that seems to be, whether it be government, society, or whatever it is, seems to be anti-Christ or anti-church or anti-Christian. Let's put it that way. And, and we also recognize the fact that the church has changed and, 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 and the enemy has sown weeds or tares. Uh, but that's not anything unusual because Satan's always been that. You remember what Jesus called Judas? He called him the son of perdition, the son of destruction. In fact, if you look at it, the enemy was able to sow a tear in the 12 apostles, in the 12 disciples. Here was a man, Judas, who had traveled with Jesus. He talked like these people. He kept the books. He served on committees. This guy, listen, was a mover and shaker. He was one of the most trusted figures out of all of the disciples because they had given him the keeping of the books. When his betrayal is made known, they don't have any idea. In fact, when Jesus begins to talk about betraying, do you know what they do? They start looking at each other, and Peter's looking at John the Beloved and saying, Is it I? Is it I? Lord, is it me? Is it me? Am I the one that could do that? In fact, even when Jesus, when Judas looked at Jesus and said, Lord, is it I? And Jesus looks at Judas and says, What thou doest, do quickly. In other words, go and do what you've been set, what has been set out to do. You go do it. Even then the disciples are looking at each other and saying, he must have had to go run an errand. They are still not convinced. Now I want you to remember something and I want you to do a little research when you get an opportunity this week. I want you to see, watch how Jesus handles Judas. He never roots out weeds. And we can't either. Is the church broke? Listen. Everyone look this way. Yes, it's always been broke. Why do you think Paul wrote all those letters? Inspired by the Holy Spirit. Because he was always dealing with a broken church. The church is made up of people and it's, and it's always broke. Listen, I've been doing this for 35 years. 35 years, think about that. For most of you, you were just a thought on the mind of God. A lot of you in this room. 
For some of you, you may have been back in grade school. I've been doing this a long time, and I'm here to tell you that the greatest hurt, the greatest loss, the greatest struggles have always been by the church. Last week this time, we were full. We were full. It was the most depressing Sunday I've had in a long time. In fact, I'll be honest with you, I was so depressed when I left here that I felt sorry for Ledge and Alicia and the rest of the family because I walked around with my lip dragging all the rest of the day. I was depressed not only Sunday, I was depressed Monday. Because the reality was is that for so many people, they had no idea, did not even remotely get what was even going on or what was being said. And even with that, the church, some of you let me down. It was the most critical moment when we should have been at our best. And I felt like maybe we just allowed an opportunity to slip by. But that's the church. You see, there are multiple voices today everywhere that are telling us that the church is broke. There's too many tears. There's too many unconverted, unregenerate people. And and, and because of that, we've got a problem. Well, my friend, we've always had a problem. And if you look at the New Testament, it was written. Now, there's a lot of voices today that are telling us this. A lot of voices are saying, well, we need stricter guidelines for admission into the church, for membership. So now we've come up with elaborate membership requirements, and and we look for clear acts of repentance. We look for a more stricter, more disciplined process by which people join up. So we, we, we thought, well, maybe we need to, maybe we've allowed too many lost people to kind of slip into the church, so maybe we just need to be more careful in this new member process. And listen, there are a lot of voices today that are attacking the evangelism of men like Billy Graham. A lot of voices today are saying, listen, Billy Graham, Billy Graham, that kind of, listen, that kind of preaching, that kind of invitation, all of that is the reason that we're in the mess that we're in. Some have said, well, maybe we ought to purge the rolls. You know what purge the rolls means, don't you? There's one megachurch. I talked to one leader of one megachurch. Do you know what what they did? They had a computer meltdown. They just went to the membership and said, we lost everybody's name. We're going to have to start all over. Now, really, it was a strategic plan to find out how many people really cared whether they were a member of the church or not. So, you know, in some ways it was kind of an ingenious thing. But there are some voices today that say that, you know, to fix the church we need stricter requirements for membership. Or number two, we need to purge the roles. In other words, we just simply need to go through the membership and we need to sift out the shaft, the husk. Look this way. That's impossible. Because who decides what's shaft? Who decides what is weeds and who decides what is wheat? You see, Jesus told these that were, when he told that parable, what they said, we'll go out, and they thought, we'll go out and we'll pull out the tares, we'll pull out the weed and you, weeds. And you know, what the, you know what the farmer said? If you do that, you will damage the wheat. Don't do it. Listen to me. We run the risk of damaging wheat, and we are damaging wheat right now. You see, the church has always been broke. 
Some people say, well, what is the answer? If you look at, I, I think John chapter 6, and we don't have time to look there, but let me just tell you real quickly. John chapter 6 is a classic example of how the church is fixed. And you go back there and read that on your own time. It's about 70, I think it's about 70 verses, Reggie, John chapter 6. But anyway, in the beginning of John chapter 6, just, just look at, just let, let me just tell you real quick. In John chapter 6, Jesus, watch this, has thousands of people. He, he is the pastor of a mega church with satellites. He has a massive following of people. I mean thousands of people. Now listen, a lot of them are there for a happy meal. McDonald's is hosting, the, no, no. A lot of them there because they're hungry. And, and so what Jesus does is in the process, he feeds thousands of men and women, boys and girls. He takes a, he takes a little lunch, and uh, you know, this is not anything new. He's done this before. I mean, this is, this, is just, this is just Jesus. But Jesus begins with dinner on the grounds, and after that, a revival service. And, and, and listen, people are just, people are just, the praise team has put together the best celebrated worship they've ever had. I mean, man, everything is going great. Jesus has his shirt tail out, he's sipping a latte, and uh, in John chapter 6, he, he, he's talking to these people about, you know, he's talking to this, these people about the kingdom of God. And man, they, man, they are hooping and hollering, man, they, it's just celebrating, it is a great time but then all of a sudden in John chapter 6, and if you, if you ever go to seminary, there's actually a course that talks about the hard sayings of Christ. Oh, a classic example, I love it. He may get mad because I said it. But Jeffrey took a Bible one day and he went upstairs and he said, I'm going to read all the red letter. I'm going to read everything that Jesus said. So he went up there and he... And I don't know, a day or two later, whenever he came back down, he came down, he looked kind of troubled. He sat there for a month and looked kind of troubled. I said, son, are you all right? He said, yes, sir. I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, I read all the red letter. And then he looked at me, and I want you to, I want you to hear this in the context that it was said. He said, wow, Je he said, Dad, Je Jesus was kind of, uh, he kind of looked at me as if, I'm, I don't want to commit blasphemy and be a smoldering pile of ashes here. But Jesus was kind of mean. No, Jesus was just firm in the requirements of following him. You see, in John chapter 6, if it's a picture of the church fixing itself, it is simply this. Jesus is moving this congregation of thousands to more harder, more painful truths and he's unbuild, unbending in the cost of following him. And guess what happens? All of a sudden, cell phones ring. You know, some guy's there. Boy, he's one of the thousands. He's been celebrating and worshiping. And then he looks at the people inviting him and said, Okay. Uh, you know, some of the young people said, you know, say over there, you know, they're texting or they're taking a phone call. And, and, and what happens is, is, that, is that visitors, people that were there who were, were one of thousands who had been experiencing the meal, now all of a sudden begin to hear the teaching of Christ and it's becoming more painful. So, some families were going, preacher, we're going to slip out. Kids got a soccer game. They got a soccer game. We need to get to. So we got, we got to take junior because we got a soccer game. We... We've got to go to, uh, you know, family, 
families coming. We've got extended family coming over. We're going to have to slip out. We've got to go. And, uh, you know, on and on. We've got to catch a plane, a camel, a taxi. We, we got to, we, we're going to have to, sorry, sorry we've, we've got to slip out of here. Uh, thousands of men and women begin to leave. They start gravitating toward the fringes. They're, 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 they're getting up. They're moving out. i got to go to the bathroom. The praise team leaves. Yeah, the praise team leaves. Man, this is, we'll never get another gig after this guy finishes. And so finally what Jesus has is he has 13 warriors. He has 12 disciples and himself. And, and if, you if you don't think that's bad enough, he has the audacity. He doesn't, he doesn't lower the standards. He doesn't brush off the edges. He doesn't compromise the teaching. He has the audacity to walk over to his congregation. Now listen, we went from thousands, perhaps a crowd of 10,000 to look this way. Twelve. And do you know what he says to these guys? He walks over after he's been preaching for a while. Now he's down to 12. He says, uh, will you also go away? Peter, thank God for Peter. He says, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. To whom could we go to? When, when you've heard truth. Now, listen to me. How do you fix the church? Two things. Are, are, are you with me? Say amen. You preach the word and you preach the cost. That's how you fix the church. You don't, you don't purge the roles. You don't make strict requirements and all of a sudden become a judge and jury as to whether somebody's repentant or not. You just allow the natural preaching of the word, the preaching of cross, begin to take the mega down to a minority. There's a danger when you and I start fixing the church and think we're going to go in and we're going to pull up the weeds because we'll damage the wheat in the process. Preaching will always winnow the crowds. Jesus died alone. Paul died alone. John the Baptist died alone. In fact, none of these men... Listen, all of these men understood that preaching the truth, preaching the cost would alienate them from almost everyone. Southside is a very, very unique church. Now, I know we're low today, but that's all right, because God has you here by divine appointment. Southside is a unique church. I tell people all the time, I preach, I'll be at uh, Country Woods in a week or so down there doing an uh, underground church, and all of you are invited to that. Uh, you know, I've had an opportunity to be in some good churches, good conferences and different things like that. I'm telling you, this church is very, very unique. It is a fascinating, it's been a fascinating journey. The fact that we're even here. Now, Wednesday night, man, it is all high energy. We've got kids, we've got youth everywhere. All of us are working, we're serving soup. We have homeless, we have people. It doesn't matter, people all walks of life come in here, eat soup, at fellowship. We had, a, we, all, we had a good group in here Wednesday night. Plus not counting the children, the youth, and the people that are being ministered to from all over this community. This is a unique church. What we experienced a moment ago in worship, 
Do you know I've had some of the most powerful, influential people who've come and visited at worship and walked out of here after a service and just wept and cried? You see, and the reality is, is though we lose a lot of people, we send a lot of people who have the spirit of Southside. I got tickled at Tanya Shearer one day who posted on Facebook, she said this, she said, little Anna said this before she was heading to church where they moved to out in Morton, Pelahatchie area. She said, I'm going to church today and I'm going to worship Southside style. Isn't that great? Now, Southside is a unique church. But let me say this, Ephesians chapter 4, before we ever even look at it, and don't worry, I'm not going to preach on Ephesians 4 today, but Ephesians chapter 4 is how a church becomes a great church the right way. Not the world's standards of greatness, but heaven's definition of greatness. Have you ever wondered sometimes if heaven approves, if God approves? You know, I thought, I thought a little while ago, I, I've been so grieved over Rick Warren. Uh, I, I think a lot of them have a lot of respect for him and, and have been thinking about the, the grief that they're going through right now. And I thought to myself, what can I do to help? There's, is there anything that I can do? And at a certain point, when our worship just became more and more powerful and more filled with the power of God's Holy Spirit, and I begin to feel God say to me, this is what you can do for Rick Warren, and this is what you can do for that church in grief right now. You worship me. You join the whole rest of the world in lifting up praise and glory to me, and that will bless Saddleback. That'll bless that church. It'll bless that pastor. Because you ever see people do the wave? Okay. You ever seen that in a stadium? Somebody, they maybe have drunk, but, you know, they'll jump up. Ah, you know, they'll do that, and everybody kind of look, ah, and, you know, before long. And, and, and the wave starts going all the way around the stadium. And as it's going around, you're waiting for your moment, you know, because you, know, you don't want to be a party pooper. You're waiting on your moment, and all of a sudden, it, you know, it, you know it may, like I said, it may be drunk standing up there, but hey, yeah, you jump up, hey, you know, holler and scream right along with the rest of them. And, uh, and, and, the wave, and, and, and listen, if the wave is interrupted, the rest of the stadium goes boo, boo, and they start shouting and probably making all kinds of obscene gestures at him, but anyway, you know. You see, if, if God was saying anything to me today, he was saying, son, you just don't let the wave die here. Jaina Mufundis, Jaina Mufundis, Nube Mufundis, Midian Shitsede, these men have been leading their congregations six hours, seven hours ago to worship in Africa, some of them leaving their churches, not eating lunch, going into the bush area to preaching points and preaching and not eating at all, taking the gospel. Sundays they're wore out. Some of you just think you did God a favor by being here this morning. And what God was saying to me, son, the wave is continuing and that wave of God's Holy Spirit will touch Saddleback and it'll affect that church because God's kingdom is bigger than this. And I can tell you this much. You know what I thought? 
I, I, in our worship, helped Rick and Kay Warren deal with their grief. That's what I thought. You see, Ephesians chapter 4 is how a church, Paul was telling this church at Ephesus how they would be a great church. Now, everyone look this way. Timothy's in Ephesus, I believe, when Paul's writing his letters to Timothy before he dies. If you, go look at the, if you go look at Ephesus, the letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation, you'll find that though they were doing a lot of good things, listen to this, they lost their first love. So I don't know that this church necessarily listened, but I, but I will say this, Ephesians chapter 4 is how you fix a church. Because when you fix a church, it's not in size, but in sacrifice. It's not in money, but it's in ministries. It's not in its facilities, but in its following. That's how you fix a church. Some people in this room right now are saying, um, you tell them, Brother Jeff, we need to return to our traditions. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. You know what Paul said? Paul said, I became all things to all men in order that I might therefore win some. Ask, ask Jeff Ainsworth. How do they worship in, uh, in Africa? Teach I'm Hosanna. Teach I'm Hosanna. Teach I'm Hosanna. Boy, they're beating them drums. Man, they're shouting. They're jumping up now. They make all these strange sounds. The men begin, the women start dancing. They're dancing out in the aisle before long. And teach I am by means we'll dance around the throne. And, and you see, they're just, and, and, and guess what the, guess, guess what the, the missionary, Mafundis Parker, is doing? Teach I am by Hosanna. And they see the Varungu, the white man. And I'm, I'm, you know, you see, what did I say a moment ago about the way? These people may be drunk. You and I are drunk on the Holy Spirit. We're not concerned about what people think around us. We are worshiping and praising God, and we're sending a wave right on to Southern California that says to that church over there and says to Rick and Kay Warren and says to those people, listen, the wave didn't die here, and what spiritually is going on here will affect your lives and make things a little bit easier and better. We want you to know that we love you. Paul said, I became all things to all men. What does that mean? How far does the church go? How far do we push the envelope? I don't know. But I'll say this no farther than the scripture allows. Evangelism can be pushed as far as scripture will allow it. Paul said, I became all things to all men in order that I might therefore win some. Never wore a tie. Quit wearing a tie in Zimbabwe. Had to wear a jacket. Never wore a tie. Wore the same jacket three and a half years. Never wore suit. Josh, I never wore suit. I never wore a tie. I, I, wore, I wore a pair of uh, khakis, doctor khakis, and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a navy jacket that I wore three and a half years, wore it every time I preached. And the reason being was because the people were so poor, they had so little, that, man, I mean, I could, listen, some days I'd come out of Africa and shake that thing, and it'd be filled with dust. I became all things to all men in order that I might therefore win some. I remember one time being in a building program and I was walking around out there and I was walking and acting and looking just like an African. I was talking in their language. Now I was saying, I was saying, Didi Mukumane, Kadiki, you know, Taurei Vishoma, I'm a little boy, talk slowly. Vishoma, Vishoma. They start talking, say, Vishoma, Vishoma. Slowly, slowly. 
But I was sitting there. I remember one time walking around. We were on a building project, Jeff, and, and, I, and I had a piece of chewbacca, a piece of corn, corn on the cob, because this is what they had eat. And, and I was out there eating this hard-filled corn while pointing with it. And we were all out there pointing using our cob of corn like it was some kind of pointer out there. And they began to laugh at me because I looked just like one of them, just like Lottie Moon looked like the Chinese. You see, the church must always be aggressive in evangelism. And we may sometimes mess up. I don't know if a coffee shop is, is necessarily appropriate in a church or not. I don't know just how radical the worship must get. But I can tell you this much, we become all things to all men in order that we might there win, therefore win some. If drinking a latte and my shirt hanging out would help people come to Christ, then man, I tell you what, I'd sip away and let my shirt tail hang out. I grew up in a day when the shirt tail hanging out was uh, when you were stopped in the hallway, you were told to tuck your shirt in. If they saw it again, you were taken to the principal's office and your butt was wore out. You had to wear your shirt tail in. I see a guy like Rick Warren with his big belly and his shirt hanging out. He may sip a latte, but he has the eighth largest church in America today and he's reaching a lot of people that might otherwise not be reached. Mark Driscoll, Mark makes a statement. He says, when I preach, he said, I, he said, I know people come because they just don't know what I'm going to say. There's much I don't know. I don't know. I do know this. When I look at John chapter 6, I see that Jesus attracted thousands and he ended up with twelve. He allowed the thousands to come. He allowed them to sit. He allowed them to be a part of it. And it was only as he began to preach the gospel, as he began to preach the word and he began to preach cost, did things change. You see, what whittles the crowd is the preaching of the word, is teaching, the preaching of cost. Now I'll close in a moment. Old folks know this. Sometimes okra, when you plant okra in a garden, and we're getting ready to start planting okra, when you plant okra, a lot of times the foliage will be too much. So old folks used to say this, when your okra has too much foliage on it, you need to whip it. Anybody know what that means? That means you just, literally, you just take something and whip off some of the foliage. Some of the, some of the foliage that's coming around the bottom of that okra, you just, you just whip it. You just, you just knock it away, and that will provide, give you more nutrients and produce more okra. I remember years ago preaching in a, in, a, in, a, in a farming community down in the Delta, and these farmers are getting all upset. And, I, and, and I'm, I remember one day I said, man, guys, what are you upset about? You've had perfect rains. You've had the perfect year so far, and your cotton is, I mean, their cotton literally looked like it was that tall. And they said, Brother Jeff, you don't understand nothing about farming cotton. The cotton has too much foliage on it. And for all that foliage, it, produces, it won't produce as much cotton. You see, cotton's a tough, tough plant. It likes hot. That's why it grows so well here in the deep south. It can grow in a dust bowl when corn and soybeans is withering and falling to the ground. That's the church. That's the church. Livingston said this, he sent a message and he said, listen, 
I need help here in Africa. The help sent back and asked, are there any good roads to where you are? Livingston said, I sent back again and said, I want men and women who will come where there's no road at all. You see, the church is fixed when you and I preach the word and preach the cost. Max Licato said this, he said, Jesus accepts people where they are, but he refuses to leave them there. Now let me close by, by, by telling you where I am. I remember one time Ledge and I were in a conversation and we were talking about some of those voices that are saying we need to fix the church, we need to tighten the requirements, we need to do this, we need to do that. And finally I said, you know, Ledge, I said, uh, if I fail, I'm going to fail on the side of love. If I fail as a husband, then I'm going to fail on the side of love. If I fail as a parent, then I'm going to fail over-loving my children. I would rather over-love in a relationship and endure the cost of that than, than, than not love as much. So if I fail, then I'm going to fail on the side of love. If the church fails, then like Jesus, we're going to fail on the side of love, on the side of grace. In fact, may our motto be, love never fails. So if the church fails, then we're going to fail on our knees washing the feet of the, of the world. Let me, let me close with this. Years ago, one of our kids, for the, to protect the, the identity, years ago, one of our kids uh, on a Friday night come in and a um, little bit of an exchange um, Sheila and I kind of got our feelings hurt. You know, it's tough raising kids. I don't care, you know, Rick Warren is Kay, Rick and Kay Warren are case in point. You know, Gary Bolin, who's been in evangelism 40 years, made this statement to me uh, just recently, probably in the last month. He said, Jeff, I've never seen ministers and Christian families under attack in my 40 years of doing evangelism as I'm seeing right now. But it was Friday night, one of our kids had come in and it had resulted in a little bit of a tense uh, confrontational exchange between parent and teenager. And um, Sheila and I were really sad. We, you know, we cried. The next morning, Saturday morning, of course, teenagers sleep till 1 or 2 o'clock. So they go into a coma on Friday night. So. But that morning, Sheila and I, we had our coffee. We had a devotional time, I, I believe, and we ate a little breakfast. And We were both sad. We hardly look at each other without crying. And finally, Sheila said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going I'm to go out here and wash their car. She said, what? I said, I'm going to go wash their car. Now, a car of a teenager is a lab experiment. Uh, you know, you never know what's growing in there. You never know what you're going to find. You, you go into a teenager's car with fear and trembling. See, Josh, you're laughing because you got three boys coming along. But, you know, you, 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 you never know what you're going to pull out from under the seat. You know what's never. You don't know what's going to be tucked down in there. You, you know, and plus the thing is just absolutely filthy. 
I mean just filthy. There's no way to describe it. So anyway, I go out there and I wash the car. Then I wash the rims and tires and begin to kind of wipe the blood and stuff up under the undercarriage. Then I, then I got down and I was, and all the while I was praying. I was praying. Then I, then I began to wash the inside, wiping it down, armor all, cleaning it, vacuuming it. Then I pulled the mats out, beating the dirt out of them and you know, and then spraying them down with an upholstery cleaner. I took a hairbrush and I was scrubbing those mats. And I worked and I worked and I worked. Finally, the owner of the car came out of their coma, walked into the kitchen. Only the way a teenager can do. Or his dad. Sheila, tears started streaming down her face. She pointed out the bay window. And when the teenager turned and looked, Dad was on his knees with a hairbrush scrubbing the floorboard of that car. Melt. In that moment, it was as if that teenager just in that moment melted came out there. Dad, what are you doing? I just, I started to cry just just cleaning your car. I love you. I love you. Hear me. If I'm going, if I'm going to fail as a husband, if I'm going to fail as a parent, if I'm going to fail as a Christian, if we fail as a church, I'll tell you how we'll fall. We will fall loving this community and loving the world. And, 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 and if I fail, I'll fail on the side of love. And that, my friend, is, had better be where the church fails. If we fail, we better fail over-loving, over-extending the boundaries, even at the expense of the pain and hurt sometimes it will bring. Because hear me before we pray. Our God, if he fails with the lost unregenerate, he failed on the side of the cross, on the side of love. Jesus washed the feet of those that would betray him and deny him and leave him. And some in that room, theologians say, were not converted until after the resurrection. Love never fails. Let's stand. Now, that, that verse there is 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never fails. I want you and I to say that together. Let's say it together. Love never fails. Let's say it again. Love never fails. Say that, someone near, say that to somebody near you right now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just pray, dear Lord, we pray that right now that the power of your Holy Spirit would rest upon every single heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room. Lord, as we begin this journey in, in Ephesians in chapter 4, 
as we look at Paul as he talks about what makes a great church. May, dear Lord, our hearts be prepared today to understand that, dear Lord, um, we have to believe that love never fails. And the church must always be about love. And so, Father, I pray, dear Lord, that you would speak to us. I pray, dear Lord, that even now as we go to this invitation, that, dear Lord, if there's anyone that may need to come and spend a moment in counsel, who may need to spend a moment at this altar in prayer, who may realize as they look at their own life or they look at relationships or look at their workplace or wherever they may be, they may say, I've not been very loving I've been hard, I've been stern, I've been very unloving. I've been ripping out tears while hurting wheat. So God, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts and prepare the hearts of your people. And Lord, I pray if there's one here that does not know you. Lord, we argue about the sinner's prayer. Well, I don't know. Paul said, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. The Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah. Philip said, let me explain it to you. He said, there's water, let me be baptized. So Lord, I just, I just believe that if you're speaking to the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, and if there's one here that is not a Christian and they've never given their life to you, and right now your Holy Spirit has spoken so clearly, then I pray that they would call out to you today. I pray, dear Lord, that even as you draw through your Holy Spirit them to a point of repentance to brokenness, as they come under the weight and begin to feel and sense the weight of their sin, Lord, I believe that's natural. I believe as we see the love of God and the love of a Savior who paid the penalty of our sin, when we begin to understand what he did on the cross, we realize that, dear Lord, that was my rebellion. That was my sin that he died for. God, forgive me. Cleanse me. So, Father, I pray, dear Lord, today, if there's one here that has never given their life, I pray, dear Lord, that they today would receive you to say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. And right now, this moment, be my Lord. And Father, I pray, dear Lord, that you would do what only you can do through the power of your Holy Spirit to that prayer when it's prayed in faith. And Lord, give them the courage to come and to make it public and to begin this journey of being a follower of Christ. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.